Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at John Steinbeck, uh, specifically the second part of his short story collection, The Pastures of Heaven. So I urge you to go back and listen to the previous episode where I go into the first half of The Pastures of Heaven and set up a little bit about um, Steinbeck's background and the context in which this novel was written. Essentially, what this novel is about is about facades. There's a character known as the shark who shows up in the first half of the novel who pretends to be rich, essentially, and he fools pretty much everyone in town who thinks he's rich. And then finally, uh, an event happens which exposes his true poverty. Uh, this is essentially a kind of the whole story of the pastures of heaven. Uh, the very first chapter is, is explorers coming there and seeing the beauty of it. And then many, many people throughout its history come to this community. It's a small rural farming community in you know, Salinas Valley near where Steinbeck grew up and lived. They come there, but then they realize that things aren't as beautiful below the surface. So the theme of facade runs throughout most of this novel. Each chapter, except for the first one, the last one, so there's about... Um, 10 core chapters. These 10 chapters each look at a character or a, a family or a, one incident. Um, there's really a character for each each chapter, but sometimes it builds up the larger family. And these stories are, are interconnected because they all are set in the same town. They're also often connected between, you know, because it is a re relatively small knit community, so people know each other. And one of the major families that show up in most stories are the Monroes. Okay, so that sets it up. But if you want to know more about this, just go back and listen to the previous episode and you'll get the full story of the pastures of, of heaven. So in this episode, we'll be starting with chapter seven, which is the story of the Lopez sisters. So we have two sisters, uh, Rose and Maria Lopez. Uh, they're, they're basically, they, they're, their parents die and they're left with really not sure what to do. And then they realize, they, they come to the realization that they are really good chefs. They're really good cooks. And, and they're kind of heavier women. Um, they're described as kind of, uh, let's see if you have the description of them. Um, okay, here it is. Um, For a time with grim martyrdom, they went hungry, but in the end, the flesh conquered. They were too fat and too jolly to make martyrs of themselves over an unreligious matter like eating. Um, so there's that. They are fairly materialistic young women who really get a lot of pleasure about owning stuff, especially owning nice things, um, and that's what what they're after. But they don't know really what to do with their life after their parents die, so they decide to sell tortillas and tamales and things, basically to open a little restaurant because they're, you know, good chefs. They're they're good at cooking. They're not very successful at first, um, and you know, business was kind of sluggish. And then finally, one of them, I think it's. I believe it's Rosa. Let me double check that. Oh, sorry. It's Maria. Maria uh, has a customer come and he eats like th three tamales or three tortillas. or She eats a lot and it's a big sale. So she basically uh, has sex with him, right? And they call this encouraging customers. Rosa hears the story of what happened and says, okay, I'll help. I'll do the same thing. I'll encourage customers too. So within a, f you know, within a few weeks of this happening, they're running essentially a body house, uh, a, a, a thinly veiled uh, brothel. Still selling food, but always with this kind of promise of sex if you purchase a certain amount of, of food. 
Now, this goes on, and they start to live a really good life, and they start to really enjoy the finer things in life. Uh, for instance, um, where is it? Sorry, I feel a little bit unprepared here. I Actually, I, I'm recording this one in the United States, and I didn't bring my notes on the Pastures of Heaven, so I'm kind of doing this from memory a little bit. I didn't want to rewrite all my notes. Here's what we got. Maria was bubbling with anticipation. In a riot of extravagance, she had bought four candy bars, but that was not all. For Rosa, she had a present, a pair of broad silken garters with huge red poppies appliqued on their sides. In her imagination, she could see Rosa putting them on and then lifting her skirt, but very modestly, of course. The two of them would look at the garters in the mirror standing on the floor. Rosa would point her toe in a trifle, and the sisters would cry with happiness. And that's just one example of how happy... Um, these two young women are for you know being able to enjoy a pretty good life after living a life of poverty earlier on after their parents died so anyways um some disgruntled customer complains to about the lopez sisters essentially running uh, a brothel uh the police come and shut her down and then they decide what are we going to do now and they don't want to give up their life they don't want to go back square i guess um and so they decide to go into the city and become prostitutes um so and they're very dramatic about this at the end. Now, it doesn't seem they have much moral concerns about being prostitutes before, but when they kind of make it official, they, they stop. They don't have the facade anymore of selling enchiladas. It becomes a real dramatic moment. And it says, Rosa, Maria cried shrilly. I'm your sister. I am what you are. She gulped a great breath. Rosa, I will go to San Francisco with you. I, too, will be a bad woman. Then the reserve of Rosa broke. She stood up and opened her huge embrace. And for a long time, the Lopez sisters cried hysterically in each other's arms. Okay, so that's that story. Uh, the next one, chapter 8, um, in the book is about Molly Morgan. Um, and I'll, I'll try to be quick, quicker with this one. Uh, the story, But it is a really fascinating um, sto story. Molly Morgan is coming to the pastures of heaven to be a teacher. Right. She's leaving her, her family. Uh, she has a little bit of education. She's going to become a teacher. Common job for, for unmarried women in the turn of the century. So I was nothing uncommon there. Going to become a teacher. She gets interviewed. And through the story of her coming to the pastures of heaven, we get her background. And the background is essentially that her father was a kind of a salesman and he was always on the road. And every like six months or every year, it would be a big ritual in which he'd come back and he'd bring toys for the kids. And he, it was always a really happy moment when he'd come back and the mother prepared them. But he'd always bring these, these special toys for them. And then he'd stay for a while and he'd run off again. Now, what happened is he just stopped coming back one time. He just disappeared. He, he stopped coming. No one really knew what had happened to him. Um, she gets the job in the Pastures of Heaven as a teacher, Molly Morgan. And she's pretty happy with that job. But then she hears a story from someone about basically a day laborer on his farm. And she realizes that that man is her father. Um, and instead of staying and confronting him and meeting her father, she just leaves town. And so instead of facing her past, she runs from it. And it seems that she was running from her whole past by coming to the pastures of heaven in the first place. And here's the, when she realizes she's dealing with someone who might very well be her father, probably is. Um, so she hears a story from Bert Monroe about this farmhand she ha he has. I was just telling about my new farmhand, Miss Morgan. I'll start over again because it's kind of funny. You see, I needed a hay hand 
and I picked up this fellow up under the Salinas River Bridge. He was pretty drunk, but he wanted a job. Now I've got him. I find he isn't worth a cent as a hand, but I can't get rid of him. That son of a gun has been every place. You ought to hear him tell about the places he's been. My kids wouldn't let me get rid of him if I wanted to. Why, he can take the littlest things he's seen and make a fine story out of it. My kids just sit around with their ears spread, listening to him. Well, about twice a month he walks into Salinas and goes on a bust. He's one of those dirty periodic drunks. The Salinas cops always call me up and when they find him in a gutter, and I have to drive in to get him. And you know, when he comes out of it, he's always got some kind of present in his pocket for my kid Manny. There's nothing you can do with a man like that. He disarms you. I don't get a dollar's worth of work out of uh, a month out of him. And after this, Molly realizes that this sounds so much like her father that it must be him. And she, instead of confronting him, she just leaves. So that's that's her story. Uh, kind of like with the Lopez sisters, we have uh, a young woman refusing to face the reality of her life and the reality of the things that have happened to her, um, refusing to really face it up. And she instead flees, flees the pastures of heaven. And there's a big theme running throughout this whole novel of people leaving the pastures of heaven uh, to avoid things or people coming to the pastures of heaven to try to start new lives. Uh, that's one reason I use California Dreaming as the opening tune for this for this novel for both episodes because it really is a, a novel about dreams and lost dreams and uh, lost hopes. Running away, a fleeing, of kind of living in, an, in unreality. All right, next we got chapter 10, uh, the story of, oh, sorry, chapter 9, sorry. Uh, chapter 9, the story of Raymond Banks. Raymond Banks is a rather, I guess, I don't, I'm trying to find the right word, a, a very straightforward masculine figure. He's well-liked in town. He raises chickens, and uh, the scenes we get here of him slaughtering chickens shows he's very good at it, really remorseless. Uh, he has a very close relationship with the death of animals. We learned that he also has a close relationship with the death of people because he likes to attend executions. He has a friend who's like the warden at a prison and he, every month or so he gets a invitation to come and w witness uh, an execution and he likes to do it. Um, and he's rather un, un emotional, very un kind of matter of fact about these executions he goes to. Um, but we get an image of how brutal he is when he's teaching someone how to kill the, the chicken while and still keep the head, you know, not just chop off the head, but kind of pierce the brain. Um, and so if you're a vegetarian, you might have a hard time with some of, with this part of the story. So, but trigger warning, here it is. Raymond picked up a little rooster out of the trap and hung it by its legs on a door frame. He fastened the widely beaten wings with a wire clamp. The rooster squawked loudly. Raymond had his killing knife with his spear-shaped blade on the box beside him. How the boys admired that knife, the vicious shape of it, and its shininess. The point was as sharp as a needle. Now then, old rooster, you're done for, said Raymond. The boys crowded closer. With sure quick hands, Raymond grasped the chicken's head and forced the beak open. The knife slipped like a flash of light along the roof of the beak and into the brain and out again. The wing shuddered and beat against the clamp. For a moment, the neck stretched urinally from side to side, and a little rill of blood flowed from the tip of the beak. Okay, so what happens is there's, I think there's some kind of my community get-together uh, at the Monroe place. And Bert Monroe approaches Raymond about going to one of these executions. And Raymond's like, sure, you can come. And again, he's very matter-of-fact about it. He doesn't make it out to be a big deal. But for Bert, it seems to be a more serious thing he wants to witness. Raymond actually calls his friend or writes his friend and gets permission to bring Bert along with him. So it's all ready to go. And Bert comes back and, and basically backtracks out of it. He says he doesn't want to go anymore. 
Uh, and Raymond's kind of annoyed by this. He feels a bit embarrassed and that he went through the, 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 the process of getting him approved. He also thinks Bert's a bit yellow, um, a chicken. Uh, it's a story about chickens, but, you know, cowardly for not going to see the execution. And that's that's what's going on in his head when he hears the story. But then Bert does a very careful explanation about why he chooses not to go. Um, and he tells a story of when he saw a, basically an execution going wrong, um, but it's an execution of, of an animal. When I was a kid, about 12 years old, I used to deliver a few groceries before school. Well, out of the brewery, an old crippled man lived. He had one leg cut off at the thigh, and instead of the wooden leg, he had one of those old-fashioned crutches. Kind of a crescent on top of a round stick. You remember them? He got around it pretty well, but kind of slow. One morning, when I went by my basket of groceries, this old man was out in his yard killing a rooster. It was the biggest Rhode Island red I've ever seen. Or maybe it was because I was so, I was so little that the chicken looked so big. The old man had a crutch braced under his armpit, and he was holding the rooster by the legs. Well... This old man had a hatchet in his other hand. Just as he made a cut at the rooster's neck, his crutch slipped out a little bit, and the chicken twisted in his hand, and he cut off one of the wings. Well, then the old man just went crazy. He cut, and he cut, always in the wrong place, into the breast, into the stomach. Then the crutch slipped, and more, and some more, and he threw him off balance, just as the hatchet was coming down. He cut off one of the chicken's legs, sliced through his own finger. Well, when that happened, the old man just dropped the rooster on the ground and hobbled off to the house holding all to his fingers. And the rooster went crawling on with all kinds of guts hanging out on the ground, went crawling off and kind of croaking. Well, Mr. Banks, I never killed a chicken since then. I've never even eaten one. I tried to eat them, but every time I see that damned Rhode Island red crawling away. And so this is essentially his story about why he doesn't want to go to the execution. He fears that he can't, if he sees that, it will affect him so much that he won't be able to it's not quite clear that, you know, obviously he's not eating people, but maybe he can't accept the brutal reality of the justice system, of the policing, of the things in his world. He just can't really face this, this nightmare. Um, and that's how he explains it. Now, Raymond, after hearing the story, his immediate response is essentially that Monroe is just a, a chicken, just a coward for not doing it. But he cancels the meeting. He decides not to go to the execution himself. And on some level, he feels the real, the truth of, of what Monroe is saying, that there is something pretty disturbing about wanting to, but being eager to see the death of another human being. All right, so we get another kind of facade. Here's this facade of, of this kind of brutal masculinity of, of, of Raymond Banks that really uh, it's it's almost a psychopathy a psychopathy perhaps that that makes him want to go to see these executions at least from Monroe's point of view there's something wrong with relishing the death of other living things so that that's that chapter then we get to cha uh, chapter 10 which is the story of, of Pat Humbert Pat Humbert is a man who uh, loses his parents around middle age and um, really can't escape the death of the, his parents. He's haunted by that. He lives in the house. Um, so this is a story about generations. And there's a couple of these where this kind of parent-child relationship. We just saw it with Molly Morgan. Um, you had it in a, some chapters in the earlier part of the novel. Um, and the next chapter, chapter 11, will be about uh, legacy and family and homes too. Here, really, the home is what really allows him to be unable to escape his parents. The, the home's almost alive. It's a physical location of the house where he grew up and where his parents were and where his parents died. And he can't escape it. And he actually talks to the house uh, and the ghosts 
that you know the way he's haunted there he talks actually talks to the ghosts that that sort of live there um he started tries remodeling but it never really works out really the remodeling never works to really allow him to escape the um, brutal realities of of this memory um finally he decides he wants to court may monroe so again we have another connection to the monroe family uh, he wants to court May Monroe and, and do that. But first he wants to make the house proper. So he does go through this whole remodeling situation. Uh, when it's done, he goes to approach May Monroe and he finds out that he that she's already been engaged to marry um, Bill Whiteside, I believe it is. So it was another family who we'll meet in the next chapter. We experience how powerful this memory of the parents is for, for this uh, man, for, for Pat. He feels the desire to rebel against his family's memory and move on with his life. He says, you're dead, he told the voice. You're just something that's happening in my mind. Nobody can expect me to do things anymore. Nobody will ever know if I don't do things I ought to. I'm not going in there. I'm never going in there. And while the spirit was still strong in him, he strode to the door, plucked out the key, and threw it into the tall weeds behind the house. He closed the shutters on all the windows except those in the kitchen and nailed them with, shut with long spikes. The joy of his new freedom did not last long. In the daytime, the farm work kept him busy, but before the day was out, he grew lonely for the old duties which ate up the hours and made the time short. He knew he was afraid to go into the house, afraid of those impressions and the cushions and the disarranged Bible. He had looked up two thin old ghosts, but had not taken away their power to trouble him. End quote. And I think during this time, he's actually sort of sleeping in the barn. And I know he ends the story sleeping in the barn rather than sleeping uh, with the ghosts of his of his family. So that's that's sort of the story. Um, and then we get chapter 11, which is about the Whiteside homestead. Um, really, we experience uh, the three generations of a family. Now, here we really have the theme of dreams, of California dreaming going on with this character. Richard Whiteside is the man who kind of picked up everything, planned his future, uh, and went to Salinas to build his legacy and his future. Uh, he, he gets the land, he homesteads the land, or he buys it, whatever. And he builds this big house, and this becomes a symbol of his plans for his future. Even the other people kind of criticize him and say, what are you doing, man? We don't build big houses here. We, we start with a small shack. We work, the, we work the fields and then we build up the house later on as our family grows. You're just one guy. Why do you need this? And he's, he says, no, no, no. I'm going to have this huge family uh, and I need a big house to store that. I need the castle. I'm going to be a feudal lord and this is going to be my castle. Uh, and I'm gonna, I need to have this long legacy. Unfortunately, the woman he marries uh, isn't able to really give him children. He has one son, and then she's so, I guess, hurt by giving birth. The birth doesn't go well, and she can't have any more children. Uh, so he's stuck with just this one child, John Whiteside. But no big deal. John can carry on this family dream just as well as, as Richard can. Uh, he's a male. He can marry and have kids, but he has the same problem. He actually carries on this dream too. John does grow up believing in, in his father's dream for uh, the Whiteside homestead. His son, though, he also just has like the one son. So his son is Bill Whiteside. And Bill doesn't want that. He wants to have a more urban life. I think he wants to move to the city. He doesn't have the same investment in that. And he goes off to, to the city. He eventually does marry Mae Monroe. We learn about that in the previous chapter. Um, now, what happens with this? Well, essentially, John, who's getting older, 
does a kind of a burning to clear out some rubbish or whatever in you know to clear out weeds whatever they do on the farms i'm not really i'm not a farmer so i'm not sure what's all entailed in this but he burns down does a burning to kind of get rid of clear the fields or to get rid of rubbish and weeds and he the fire goes out of control and burns down the whiteside house so that puts an end to the dreams of of the whiteside family and in fact they were already destroyed richard's dream was already destroyed when bill decided he didn't want to stay in salinas anyways quote in the west where if two generations of one family have lived in a house it is an old house in a pioneer family a kind of veneration mixed with contempt is felt for old houses there are very few old houses in the west those restless americans who have settled up the land had never been able to stay in one place for very long they build flimsy houses and soon move on to some new promise old houses almost invari- are invariably cold and ugly and that's the lesson of the white side house that these these dreams can't last um, the west is too restless too mobile and of course we are go- as we go on to steinbeck's life we're going to meet these people who struggle with mobility that's going to be a big theme of steinbeck's career we have it with indubious battle we have it it, to a god unknown in a way I mean, even though that's a guy who kind of is more bound to the land in more mystical ways but he's even someone who left the east to come to the west and imposes on the land of california his dreams mice and men is about migrant workers grapes of wrath is about migrant workers uh, tortilla flat is about very mobile people um, so pretty much mobility is going to be a big thing here and the point he makes with the white side sto- uh, story is that big dreams don't work in the west um, they inevitably fail. Um, so we've met all our characters. We've met the pastors of heaven. We've seen the connections between them. And we see what these characters have in common um, and what these stories have in common. And the final chapter is travelers again. The very first chapter was the kind of Spanish explorer discovering this area. Chapter 12 is about tourists coming through. And they have the same opinion that the original Spanish explorer had, that this is a beautiful land, that this is a place to build a future. People who come here dream of futures there and we get a series of characters who we just meet for one paragraph but they think about what they see and i'll just give you one example um, a priest a priest looks at this he gets off the train and sees it he says there might be a little church down there no poverty there no smells no trouble my people might confess small wholesome sins that fly off with the penance of a few hill marys it would be quiet there nothing dirty nor violent would ever happen there to make me feel sorry or doubtful or ashamed the people in those houses would just love me. They would call me father, and I'd just be with them when it was just to be just. And I'd be just with them when it was kindly to be just. Sorry. I'm not a good priest. I scourge myself with the poor and with the smells of them, with the fighting. I can't run from the tragedies of God. Maybe I'll come to a place like this when I am dead. And each other person we meet, an old man, a bus driver, uh, I think we meet a woman too, they all impose some kind of perfection, idealization of the, of the pastures of heaven. And that's how the novel ends. So it ends on a very kind of bittersweet note where nothing's really changed. It's still going to draw people. People are going to come. People are going to be disappointed. People are going to then leave out of frustration. It's still going to be a place of facades, of, of false realities, of, of dreams, right? Of just the, the fuzziness of dreams, right? Um, you can never quite grab them, right? If you've ever had that kind of dream where... You can't quite reach your objective, right? It's um, it gets in the way, right? And and that's that's Steinbeck's point about this community. So uh, this is the part of the podcast where when we finish up a novel, I, I like to go through the themes and list some of them. Now, as I said, I, I lost my notes to this, so I'm 
I'm, I don't want to reconstruct all my thoughts. So I made a really short list for this one, and um, you know maybe I'll, I'll come back and I'll say more things about the pastures of heaven as they come to me when we look at other Steinbeck novels. Um, but I did kind of reconstruct, you know, four, four or five, five, five themes that I think work here. I haven't done this in a while. When I w- the previous series on Thomas Paine, I wasn't kind of going through this process because of the nonfiction and, and a lot of pamphlets and short works. Um, but with novels, I like to sit down and, and kind of uh, list some of the themes that we can use to then compare to other American writers. And it's kind of like an index. The idea here is a sort of an index of, of tropes and themes. Um, so the first thing is, is kind of just building off of the whole concept of the novel, and that is perception uh, versus reality or dreams versus reality, right? Uh, in a sense, we got California dreaming going on here, but that I think can be a, a, a small case example of the American dream, right? And its failures. And that's something that's really on Steinbeck's mind. Although he says it all in California, you have the the American dream more broadly. And just that the reality is never matches what that dream is. So that's one theme. Um, a second one is, is mobility. Uh, we have a lot of characters moving. I think every character here is mobile in one way. They, they either come from outside the pastures of heaven or they, they leave at the end. Um, often you have characters going from the countryside to the city or the city to the countryside. And we're reminded of of Frank Norris. Now, I don't know Steinbeck's relationship to Frank Norris. I, I assume he read his novels, but uh, I can't help but sometimes be reminded of novels like The Octopus, um, with which has that same theme of the the tension between the city and the countryside and the mobility between them. Um, another one, commercialized sexuality, sex work, um, or just broad. I mean, I when I talk about this, I, I mean it in kind of a couple ways. Yeah, you have straight up sex work here, like with the Lopez sisters, Right. But also, I mean, more broadly, the the marriages or relationships that are on some level commercial or practical, not really necessarily about love. Right. Um, maybe the Lopez sisters are the best example of this. But you have a lot of marriages here that seem very much marriages of convenience. Um, Steinbeck has not yet at the point of this novel seemed to have written a really strong relationship or relationship that's really believable beyond a very superficial level. Um, we're going to see this again with the works like of Mice and Men. Uh, you have it a lot in an indubious battle where women exist just as sexual outlets for, for day laborers, right? It's kind of like the end of the month, you get your paycheck and you go to visit a prostitute. So this is might be a problem with Steinbeck. Maybe it's just the reality of life for these day laborers, but I don't quite know what to make of it yet. And I'm going to think about this as... Um, we go forward. Um, I do know later on he certainly writes stronger female characters, but his greatest work, East of Eden, you know, has a very problematic uh, female antagonist. Really, the the villain of the novel is is the woman. So, what to do with this? If anyone knows, please write me. I'd love to hear your opinions on this. Um, uh, another theme: the day laborer. Right? There's a lot of our characters here are established people in the community farmers, homesteaders, but they talk about day laborers and day laborers are part of the community here. Um, so they're there. And they're going to certainly come, I put it here largely because it's going to come up so much in, in Steinbeck's later novels. Um, and another one, alcohol, alcoholism uh, and abuse. Uh, we have many characters here who have unfortunate relationships with alcohol. And again, that's something that's going to come up in other novels. In Tortilla Flats, um, it, it's going to be a big thing. Of, of Mice and Men, a little, I think there's a 
a few alcohol issues in, in my cement as well. Um, so I, right now I only have these five because I, I couldn't really reconstruct my whole list. I think originally I had eight or nine. Um, but anyways, um, those are the themes, I think, that are some of the most important in Pastures of Heaven. A really good novel. I, I, I don't know how often it's read anymore. It's, you know, when people read Steinbeck, they read Of Mice and Men, or they read Grapes of Wrath, or East of Eden. Um, but I think these early novels have a lot of nice stuff. I'm really excited to talk about To a God Unknown, which is probably the the least well-known or the least uh, studied and talked about Steinbeck novels. Um, I'm excited to talk about Tortilla Flat too, um, and especially in a dubious battle. Uh, and I, I like that novel because it's so rare we get a really sympathetic uh, account of, of, of laboring class, of, of, the la- of the labor side of, of the class conflict in, in America. And Steinbeck's really on the side of the strikers there. And it's, an, it's a nice novel for that. So with that, I will close the book on the pastures of heaven, and I will see you next time when we'll be looking at To a God Unknown. Uh, please write me. You can contact me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, but um, you can rate, share, subscribe um, to this. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. or sub- you know Some people were wondering how to you know, subscribe to this and how to get into it. You can subscribe directly on Podbean, or you can like subscribe through... Um, podcasting software like I use Podkicker and you can just you can find it there or you can search for it on iTunes and subscribe to that however you do it but there are there are ways to various ways to to subscribe to this um, anyways thanks so much for listening I'll see you next time in 100 pages Church, I passed along the way.